Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. This Best of Life Writing episode originally aired on May 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Sinan Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, as you know, we share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. And as you know, just a single sentence a day gets you started. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yes. So here we are with another podcast. Great to see you, darling. We had a a good meeting this morning about a bunch of stuff that we will have. There was a little bit of this, but that's okay. Can't be afraid of this. A little bit of what? Yeah, a little conflict, a little trying to work out why you wanted to do one thing, why I wanted to do something. It's important to, to look at the, the values and beliefs underneath the decisions we make so that we can be on as much the same page as possible. That's true. And that's why there's one person that's always the lead in every project and they get the final say. So right. we can talk all we want, but there's always a clear winner. <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, uh, super, super excited about today's guest, Akela Cooper. Yay! And uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about her a little bit later. But first, a quick catch up. It seems like we only recorded a podcast two days ago, honey. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I don't. <laughs> we need to start stacking these up a little bit, so we're taking more time in between them. But on the other hand, if we did that, then we wouldn't be able to talk about what's been happening in the interim in, in intervening days. Right. So, in the intervening days, what are the things that, that jump out to you? What have you been doing, hearing, reacting to in your life and career? I have been super excited. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about meetings that we're taking and things that we're doing and really, really high profile projects that we're dreaming of. But I'm very excited that I got a couple of days, quote unquote, off last week to really dig into a short story that I'm working on. I have a short story collection that will be coming out next year and I need to write three new short stories for it. And I'm I'm into the first one. It's called Rumpus Room. I'll say that about it. And I'm having a great time. It's just starting to gel. Like It's like, you know, my theory about about horror is that one of the things that allows the horror into the story is the transgression. And I had created such a strong transgression that I really didn't like her. (laughs) You know, it was like, well, who cares what happens to her? But I have softened the transgression a bit. And I've also found my way into her head so that I have full empathy for her. Everybody makes mistakes. She made a mistake. She's paying for it. And she's going to really pay for it in ways that she wasn't anticipating. Let me ask you a question. I mean, if you have a, trans, if a character with a transgression and it's 
so bad that you have a hard time maintaining rapport with them. You have a choice of either making the transgression smaller or increasing the motivation and the, the clarity and size of the motivation. You know, cannibalism in one context is the ultimate human horror. In another context, it's just survival. I mean, it's like, you know, the person's already dead. We're freezing up here in the snow. Of course you have a barbecue. You know, it's it, it's like that. So I, I wanted to know which do you genuinely generally tend to do? In this case, I, I softened the transgression a little bit. I, I made it more of a an accident. Not that could have happened to anyone. She has a bit of an anger management problem. But in the writing I did over the past few days, I made it clear where she got her anger management problem from because she has a phone conversation with her mother. And that really helped to soften and humanize her for me. Yeah, she made a mistake, but but she was born into a circumstance where she's actually doing the best she can. Okay, well, let me ask another question then. In what is probably your most popular work, My Soul to Keep. Yes. What was Angela's transgression? It was Jessica's transgression. Jessica's transgression was having uh, rose-colored glasses and living in denial, which is understandable. A lot of people do it. But that was sort of based on my experiences with relationships where I was feeling constantly disappointed by the people I was dating. But then really my friends could point out, but you already knew he was this or didn't he tell you he was only interested in a casual relationship. So I was setting myself up for disappointment. Self-deception and denial yeah. was her transgression. Yeah. And from my immortal character, because my soul to keep is from my African immortal series, my immortals character, his transgression was hubris. That he thought he could do more than he could, that he, had yes. he really had. Whereas her transgression was she wasn't honest with herself about she wasn't crunching the data that her sensory system was taking in. She was filtering it in order to keep this perfect relationship rather than saying there's something strange going on here. So in both cases, would, would it be reasonable to say they were being dishonest with themselves? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's yes. interesting. That's interesting because both of these characters ultimately are people who we love and, you know, care. And, and so both of those transgressions have to be things that are ultimately understandable. Because you know it's it we're not going to take these people so far that that there's no way back for them emotionally. You know, so what? Anything else going on with you? Not really. I'm just still. You know, our son is graduating from from high school in the upcoming weeks, so that's very exciting. Yes, I can't wait for that. Okay. Well, for me, I did not get as much work done on the project I'm working on with Larry Niven. I, I had an energy crash because I had, had some sleep interruption one night at four o'clock in the morning. That trashes me completely because I wanted to get that out of the way because I wanted to clear my schedule so that I could have five uninterrupted days on uh, this project that we're working on that has to do with the with a, with a podcast, dramatic, dramatic podcast. And then... We have some issues about some other appointments where people might want us to do a pitch this week on a completely different project that's been sidelined for months. So I, you know, trying to figure out what the timing is on these things, how, in other words, how to juggle all the different projects, you know, how do do I literally keep track of them enough to not go a little bit crazy? And it's like, what am I supposed to be doing today? What am I supposed to accomplish this week? What, you know, if there's more than one project, what is the timeline for this project? And when is it due? And what do I have to do to do it? Those things, I have to get as many of those things out of my head and onto the page or chalkboard or index cards 
or or post-it notes or something as possible so that it's just not just running around behind my eyes because I work very well when I have a sense of what is it that needs to be done. So I think I, I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to organize all these things. You know, the, the you know graphic novel, the, the podcast, script, television show, potential movie. I, you know, these things, each of them requires a different way of approaching the issue. Each of them are different forms of the same process, which is storytelling. But I, I think that I have my hands on a way of, of using a tool that I've already played with, which is, you know, my journal. I use my journal for a lot of things, but I think I can use it for more. I think I can use the monthly calendar and write in, okay, this is the project. Each day, each day I write the name of the project on represents five pages of work that need to be done. So I can literally count them. If it's a 120 page script, then that requires 24 days of, of work to create that first draft. And if I'm doing it every day, I can do that in a month. If I'm doing it every other day, I can do it in two months. If I'm juggling three different projects, it might take three months, but it gives me a sense of this is how I'm spending my time every day because ultimately all I have is my time and my energy and I have to prioritize my family first or things are going to go sideways fast. Like you said, Jason's out of school, you know, in two weeks. So this is, this is a crunch period par excellence. It's a, it's a great period though. It's full of possibilities. I'm so excited that we are going to be introducing our guests. This is someone I have been admiring from afar. I'm so glad that she's actually going to be on the show. Kayla Cooper is the executive producer of the new Paramount Plus series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. She also wrote the hit horror film Malignant, directed by James Wan. In her earlier career, Cooper was a staff writer for Grimm for two seasons, went on to be a writer and co-producer for The 100, American Horror Story, Luke Cage, Jupiter's Legacy, Witches of Easton, and Chambers, which I loved, by the way. That was a, a great horror series. I wish it had lasted a little bit longer. And she's the screenwriter of the upcoming sequel to the horror film The Nun and a bunch of stuff, just so much stuff that she has going on. And she can tell us more about it than I can. Welcome to the podcast, Akela Cooper. Come on Yay! in. Yay. Oh, that's right. We have to let her in. She's coming in now. There she is. There she is. How are you? I am well. How are y'all? Very well. Very well. So glad you came on the show. That I've been watching social media, and I've been watching people's reactions to Star Trek: Strange New World, and. I have one thing I have been hearing people saying over and over again is it feels more like Star the Star Trek they grew up with than anything that has been done since Deep Space Nine. And what I wanted to know is was did you deliberately do that? How did you do that? Because you seem to be making the core fans happy. How are you uh, doing this? Yes, that was a deliberate choice. I'm sure it was made before I was brought on. Uh, and Akiva Goldsman wrote the pilot. 
Uh, and the show was picked up, you know, uh, Secret Hideout, which is Alex Kurtzman. Yeah, that was the decision that they made, that they were going to take these characters and hew closer to the original series this time. So we get more, you know, one-off episodes, which pretty much they're all one-off episodes with some serialized character development throughout the series. But yeah, no, I was I was super excited when it was proposed to me, and I was, like, uh, very eager to work on the show. Fantastic. I just, I have to say, I watched the pilot today, full disclosure, and part, but I was hooked and I, I watched part of the next episode too, even though I was only going to watch the pilot. And I had heard people talking about their emotional reactions to seeing Uhura, young Uhura in mm-hmm. particular. And I was like, oh, you know, okay. But then I saw it and immediately tears in my eyes. Like every time she came on screen, tears, I was like, what's going on with me? And I, I, I'm thinking maybe it's because I grew up watching that original show and I had a mm-hmm. Black woman give me permission to envision myself, you know, as part of a Starship crew, just as a matter of course, growing up and how meaningful that was to me. Or I teach it a little bit in my Afrofuturism mm-hmm. class. It's so interesting that Nichelle Nichols was playing Uhura at roughly the same time. You had these Black women behind the scenes at NASA, the hidden figures, ladies Mm -hmm. literally helping us go into space at a time when my parents were agitating and fighting and risking their lives for just basic citizenship rights, the right to vote, Mm -hmm. the right, and how meaningful that imagery was. We didn't know about the hidden figures but we knew about Lieutenant Uhura. Have you noticed that this reaction to Uhura too? Yes, it was a reaction that I had to Uhura and to Jordy LaForge and to Captain Cisco, who is like, once he went bald and grew that goatee, it's like, there's a captain who looks like my dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like in the future running things. It was like, it was, you know, revelatory to see that. And, and I talked about this when we did Star Trek Day last year how important it was for like my parents especially in in my generation to know it's like the can we curse on this i forgot to ask. yes you can <laughs> give it an like, explicit warning yeah. <laughs> like, for, for all of us it's like it was important to know this like the shit you are going through now pays off even though it's like it's in, it's in the fantasy and it's in the show because at the time it's like with science fiction you rarely got to see yourselves in the future like black people were not in the jetsons uh, we were right. not in the Flintstones, so it's like we're not in the past, we're not in the future. Where are That's we? Right. We're like in this, you know, miserable, hard present, you know, for my parents' generation. And to like see that, and it's like, no, it's like the world gets its shit together. You've got Russians, you've got the Japanese, you've got a black woman on the crew. Like an interracial kiss doesn't mean a damn thing in the future because it's like, you know, wasn't when it aired, but it's like in the context of the show, it's like commonplace, nobody cares. Right. So, yeah, it was kind of like, that subversive message that's just like, there's a future for all of us where there is no more strife. You just got to keep going and you can get there. Like, you know, hopefully at least, you know, younger generations, which, you know, we were doing this show in the summer of 2020. And so for that, it was also kind of frustrating for me. And, and, you know, some of the other writers of color on the show, it's like, this shit is still happening. We're still going through this. And it's like, but at least we can, you know, point to Star Trek. And it's like, no, we're still going to give people that light at the end of the tunnel. And we will get through this and we will be, you know, better for it. Yes. You have to have had, uh, have come across people accusing you of being too woke. You know, you know, it's like, I, it, crack, it cracks me up when I heard that directed at Disney, who during the entire 20th century never had a single black care animated human being in any of their animated films in the entire yeah. 20th century. And nobody even noticed that. But if you if you have diversity now, then they're being woke. So clearly they're preferring literally to remain asleep. 
They're saying, yes, let, yes. Us, let us have this dream of primacy that we're the most intelligent, beautiful, you know, brave, sexy people cool. in the world and the entire universe revolves around us. That, you know, I have to think in some ways it must have felt great to have that delusion. I mean, that what does that even does that feel like being a baby and the whole family standing? I have no idea. I can't. I can't imagine. So cute. I, don't like, know. I can't. I can't imagine that perspective because also it's like, have you have you seen Star Trek? They literally had an episode in the original series where the characters, the aliens, had half white, half black faces, yes. and it was all about. It's like, if anything, the original series was like. I don't want to say preachy, but it was like it's very obvious. But they are they, they, they both of those aliens were played by white actors. Yes. And one of those aliens been played by a black actor. That's how they would have done that today. You know, and then people would have been complained that it was woke. It's like, it's like but it's it's like they were still talking about racism within yes. the context of the future. Kirk and Ahura had the first interracial kiss ever that right. made it to national television. Right. And again, you had Russians at the time when we were just like post-World War II. It's like, mm, we're not in the Cold War yet, but we don't trust you. Listen, even and today- a Japanese feels, man, post-World War II. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there were people who, who felt that, that Spock looked demonic. I mean, you had, you had yeah. yeah, because of the ears and the slight green tint to his, his face that they, that they had at the beginning. So it was it was seriously bucking what had been on television yeah. before can, that period. Can I say it would feel edgy having Russians on the uh, bridge now? <laughs> it yeah. did in the present day. Yeah, it really would. It really would. Unfortunately, <laughs> so. you know, everything old is new again. And that's yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to know something circle. about your creative process. If you knew that what you're being tasked with is to deliver the same values and emotional experience of the original show, the thing that started this all. How do you hold that in your heart, in your mind, in order to begin the process of actually creating? Because you were not frozen by that by by that task. You know, some people would get totally blocked. I can't do this. It's too important. You clearly have risen. See that? Look at that that face that you made right there. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So you're in that sense, in this context, you are a winner. You're a person who can take that stress and turn it into excellence. How do you do that? Well, it helps when you have like a great staff around you and like this is one of the you know everyone was like incredibly honest on the staff which I think helps and you know we had two showrunners who were willing to listen it's like hey maybe not this direction maybe that direction instead and yeah we were just we were given reign to explore these concepts and these options from our perspective as it would play into the future and now I have to say it's like it wasn't until later that I realized I'm like, oh, they're dropping in footage from from the January 6th insurrection. <laughs> wow. Like that was a choice that was made, you know, in in post, I think, uh, or when they were editing it together, what footage would be used. Because, again, this was, you know, 2020. And I don't think that decision had been made at that point. But it was just like it's it's great when you have people that you can lean on for help and emotional support in the room. And there was rarely pushback from I guess it's Paramount. It was CBS All Access when we were there. Right, yeah, it's Paramount Plus. I I call it, I mean, I'm talking about the corporate, like the- Oh, corporate, yeah. Yeah, like, I guess it's Paramount. And they they let us explore these and they let us do what we were going to do. So kudos to them. Uh, But yeah, it was never one of those, I'm like, we- we can't do this. I can't like sit at my keyboard and write this. It's like uh, 103, which airs um, 
this Thursday, I wrote with Bill Walkoff and just as like a writing partner, like we're not normally writing partners, but like a lot of people were paired up this season. Like, yeah, no, it's very easy to talk to him. He's a white guy. Very easy to talk to him about like, you know, what we needed to put and not put in our episode. And that's all I can say about that right now until you guys see what the context is. But we do kind of touch on, you know, prejudice in the Federation in our episode. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was like, I, I don't want to brag, but like, yeah, no, we had no problems. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So let me ask you another, Writing these. another question then. But I, in terms of the hero's journey, I would suggest that what you just said is allies and powers. You need to be surrounded by the right. I'm going to let now. I have a question, but I've been talking a lot. Tanonari, do you have there's something you wanted to say? Sweetie? Well, I just I was thinking about that January 6th footage you mentioned, and I'm thinking that was in the pilot episode because, and it was interesting for those of you who, have, who haven't seen it. It's in the context of. Whatever happened to the United States? Whatever happened to planet Earth? You know what I mean? And, and this footage is uh, uh, showing rebellion is sort of drawing a corollary between the civil unrest on Earth and the civil unrest in this other planet. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going there. I noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was also, again, like when we when we wrote this was two years ago in, in the summer of 2020. And to have, you know, the January 6th insurrection happen because in the context of Star Trek within the world, like they have to go through, as Pike says, they go through World War Three, and then eugenics wars. And it's like, so the narrative is like leading up to World War Three, and then we have the insurrection and now we have, you know, Russia and Ukraine, which everyone is like, oh shit, is this what's going to set off World War Three? And I'm like, growing up, World War Three was always this fictional sci-fi thing 
that authors would write about in books or you would see in movies are like, yeah, it happened, but it, you never actually thought it would happen. And the context is like, oh yeah, no, World War III is a fiction. And then to have it go, oh no, there is a real possibility that this could kick off. And we actually <laughs> talked mm. about it in the show before this ever happened. It's, it's like a weird kind of prescience to have when you're a writing staff. I w- the question that I had for you, I would like you to be as specific as you can be about the actual process of collaboration. How do you work with another writer to create a seamless piece of work? Can, can Give us as clear a vision as possible as you can. It depends on what show you're working on, actually. Like sometimes when you're collaborating with someone who's not your writing partner, you just basically choose how you want to divide the script up. Normally there are two of you. And so it's either by stories, like you have A, B, and C stories, and then someone is like, I'll take the A story, I'll take the B story, and then you split the C story. What Bill and I did, and later on, what Onitra Johnson and I did for episode 108, we just half and halved it. So Bill wrote the back half of 103, and I wrote the front half of 103, and then we put it together, we, we Frankenstein it, as we say, together, and then we both read it. And then we come together on like a Zoom call like this. It was pandemic. And we give each other notes and we talk it through. And then I, as a senior writer, will take that and then do a pass. We'll read it again, give each other notes, do another pass. And then I'll send it off to our showrunner, uh, Henry Alonso Myers, who takes it pretty much. He can take it from there and do his pass, or he can choose to give us notes and then we'll execute those notes. And as we're executing the notes, we're also just like continuing to work in our sections that we've assigned ourselves. And then at some point after we've done that, it goes to our producers, which is Secret Hideout. So Alex Kurtzman and his producing partners will read it give us notes. Bill and I will do the notes. Henry can choose, our showrunner can choose to do a pass there or give it to our network, which was Paramount Plus. They give us notes. We do the notes. And then pretty much at that point, Bill and I are like back in the room and we're off to the next thing. But that's pretty much how the process worked uh, for Star Trek. There's a lot of notes in there. And, oh, yeah. and note, notes are not probably most writers' favorite part of the process. <laughs> I'm wondering, how do you how do you navigate notes? It's, it's great when you think they're good notes. I love good notes. It's like, oh, you've seen things in the script I didn't even see. Yes, that's exactly what I should. I, but then there are the notes that sometimes you don't like. How, how, do you, how do you navigate conflicts over the notes? I think it becomes a discussion. And a lot of times, if you, there's a note that you don't agree with, it's trying to get at the heart of what it is, what we call what's the note under the note, like what is, you know, the person missing in that or like what are we not understanding about what they're saying? And then usually like when you have that discussion, it's like, oh, OK, it becomes like clear, you know, whether it's like this character's motivation is not apparent or this plot point doesn't kind of make sense. If it's something that you want to fight for, then again, it's talking it through and making sure the reader understands what you were going for. And if they don't, then that's up to you to go back into the script and make sure what you are trying to get across is understood to the readers. Because a lot of times as writers, we know what we mean in our heads and like we'll shorthand it on the page. And then someone is like, wait, what? I missed this. And it's like, how could you miss that? I know what it is. It's like, oh, wait, no, I, they weren't in my head when I wrote this. So of course they don't know the intention. So it's just, it's like, hopefully a lot of respectful conversation and talking it through. And eventually you will get there though. Sometimes when you are working on things that are not yours, 
like, you know, shows and whatnot, you're going to give either the showrunner or the executive producers or the studio execs what they ask for. That's that's sometimes a battle that you just lose. True. Let's, let's clear all of them away for a moment. You're writing for yourself. You're sitting in front of the, the computer. Mm-hmm. What is your process? You know, you, there's something that you want to write, a script that you want to do. What do you go through internally or externally to set yourself up to do the best work you're capable of doing? Oh, I have a, I want to say a prolonged process. I usually just, whatever idea has popped in my head, I'll usually just let it sit and see if there's actually anything there. Because no, I think in I think in trailers, I think in scenes. And so usually it's like, okay, I've got that scene. It's not a movie. There's that scene, still not a movie. Oh, I have an ending. Okay. Okay. But how do I open it? And then like, once I kind of have like a general beginning, middle and end, like if I don't have an end, I'm not writing anything. Once I have all that, then I start just like jotting down notes. Uh, and I like to write by hand when I do this, just all of the stuff that I know I want to like put in there. And again, it's like, I'm also listening to music, looking for songs that inspire more thoughts and more scenes and, you know, more moments with characters, more like, you know, snippets of dialogue, write those down. And then once I feel like I have enough, which is probably like a couple of pages in like my little notebook, I'll just, you know, get out a legal notepad, sharpen a pencil and just like start writing the scenes that I know. And I'll try to do it in order, but basically it's just get the scenes down. Once I have that, I'll put them in order, leaving like gaps in between the scenes where it's like, I don't know what's in between this and that, or I don't know necessarily how act one is going to end. And I just keep filling it in up until I have a general idea of act one, act two, act three. And then I'll go back and get a new notepad and a new pencil. And then I'll start writing the outline by hand. And I do that because I find writing by hand helps me generate thoughts as I'm writing, whereas typing doesn't necessarily do that. And it's also, you know, like you're just staring at a screen. And so I'll write, I'll handwrite the outline. And once I have that, then I'll type out the outline and see if anything new comes in there. And pretty much once I get to the script, I try to have as much as possible in the outline. So I don't have to do too much thinking in the script, just get on the page and let it flow and know where I'm going. And then write the draft, send it to a friend or my reps for feedback and and keep hammering it from there. That is fantastic. I love that you use the the legal pads. Mm -hmm. Maybe that goes back to childhood for you because I started writing on my father. My father is a lawyer. So I started (laughs) writing by stealing his legal pads and filling them up. Maybe that's part of that flow creative connection for you is going back to childhood. But I find that fascinating. I could never write by hand now. My handwriting is terrible. What you just said right there, I hope that anyone who wants to be a writer will back that up and listen to what you just said again. I hope they will also take a look at the video on this because I was watching your face when you were saying it and you were very clearly talking about going into a visual state where you can envision the thing that you mm-hmm. that you want to do until you can feel a particular way about it and you have the auditory the, the sound effects the, the the soundtrack going so you you're like jazzing with it when you get to that point you write it down you, yeah. act, you with, with with your 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 pencil or pen on a legal pad which is the way you learned how to write when you were a little girl yeah you're going from visualization and auditory into the kinesthetic of writing it down once you've done that then i watch you look straight at us when you said that that meant that you were all connected all those things now we're looking at your adult 
you know, self, you're saying, I'm ready to go. You type that out and then you start expanding it. That what you just did right there was the behavior and thought patterns of a professional who is in control of her creative flow. Well done. That, that was excellent. Loving it. We <laughs> oh, love it. It. Took me, it took me a while to figure that out for myself, like what works and what doesn't. Like some people, you know, like get a recorder or whatever, or like yeah. voice memo on your phone that helps them. But yeah, I, I just realized, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it's like, oh, Hey, I think more when I'm writing by hand. Yes. And I'm thinking clearer. Okay. Then I just need to write, like, I don't do this for pro stuff, by the way, like Star Trek, I was not writing stuff by hand. Then again, we had a writer's room where, you know, we were breaking everything together. So then it's just like, go off and type the outline. Mm. Uh, But yeah, my, my personal process is my personal process. I would love to talk about your, well, you, you're a genre lover. You're all over the place with genre. You're doing Mm -hmm. science fiction, of course, horror with malignant. And I, I, as a horror head, I just have to talk to you about that that relationship. If you have a favorite between science fiction and horror, is it even fair for me to ask that question? And where did your love for each of them or for genre in general come from? I don't really necessarily have a favorite because I think horror and sci-fi are those two twin stars that can like, they're like chocolate and peanut butter. You can combine them easily. Exactly. Um, like aliens. Yes. <laughs> That's science fiction action, but the original aliens, what alien was sci-fi horror. Yes. yes, and it works. Absolutely, Lovecraftian, um, you know, horror. horror. The thing you that can, you did not know. Yeah, and you can like, you can do horror comedy, you can do sci-fi comedy, you can, yeah, and so it's like, the, both of those are, yeah, they're like Romulus and Remus, they're the two little twin wolves that I love. I can't really pick a favorite, though it probably leans towards horror, just because I like scaring the shit out of people, but again, yes. you can do that with science fiction. You can. <laughs> well, science fiction is sort of the playing field, it isn't the mm-hmm. dominant emotion. Horror, from my point of view is that the dominant emotion you are playing with is fear that you yeah. want to generate fear in the audience you could do that in a, in a science fiction world in a western you know anything that you wanted so you know malignant don't want to talk about it too much because there are some really juicy secrets that you play with in that i'd like to know a little bit about your theory of writing horror i i don't have one i just write <laughs> i don't Oh, okay. I've I've never had that question before. Like, I maybe I have goals, which is to like scare people. Okay, let's like, start with that. Sure, yeah, like make sure like there's something on the page that a director can take, and I'll know visual. I'm like, yeah, this is gonna look cool. Yeah, it's just really, it's just like at least at least one good scare. Yeah, you had a super and- cool visual in mind, clearly. For malignant, and you based a lot of your movie around that super cool visual. At what point in the writing process did say super cool visual occur to you? You said being artfully vague. <laughs> it was there from the beginning because that super cool image was what James Wan and his producing partner, collaborative partner, creative partner Ingrid Bisu, who is also his wife, they brought malignant to me. Excellent. And it it because I'd written I'd already written a movie for the guys at Atomic Monster Megan, which comes out next January with Allison Williams. And they liked what I did on that. So James wanted me to come in and like talk about this other idea that he had with Ingrid. And she was like fascinated by tumors and stuff like that. And I'll try to leave it vague. Yes. Uh but yeah, they had like this three-page treatment. And, and they knew that ending, like they knew it, not the specifics, but they knew that the, the reveal was going to be there and it was going to be violent. And, and the reveal was what it was going to be. And so I took that ball 
and uh, flushed it out and, and, and ran back down the field with it and gave it back to them. And so they hired me to write the script because I also tangentially had experience with someone who had something similar something similar yes yeah really so, so i knew i knew off the bat what they were talking about when they gave like yes. the terms and everything i was like oh yeah i'm familiar with that because i had a friend <laughs> excellent excellent wow sorry to hear that did you re- did you oh like- no she's fine <laughs> oh good good because yeah that could have gone a lot of ways did you love horror as a as a kid watching movies reading mm-hmm. uh books was that yes. something that that your it, parents oh, or people it, around it's you obvious love? look at her face when she talks about it she gets younger <laughs> When she talks about <laughs> that evil little girl what inside those, her, yes, yes. Tell me a little bit about the roots of it. I want to go to the roots of it. What's wrong with us that we love this stuff? So I'll give you some background. I grew up in southeastern Missouri. My father was a farmer. My mother was a school teacher. And so I have an older brother and an older sister, like five and 10 years. And so growing up on a farm, my parents would like leave my sister in charge of us. My sister is 10 years older than me. So she was a teenager, like as I was like coming up. And Mm -hmm. so at a certain point, she just did not care what I saw that she was watching at home. Like when she was babysitting us, when our parents were out. So I, my first real memory of a horror experience was like walking downstairs and coming around the corner into the the family room. And she's watching Hellraiser (laughs) two. The moment when I forget the character's name, but the evil woman is is been brought back from hell and she's coming out of the mattress and she has no skin and there's blood everywhere. And it's just like freaky. And I just kind of stopped and I watched this scene and it's like, this is going to give me nightmares. It's still fascinating to watch though. And then at a certain point, I was like, yeah, I don't need to see this. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to back it up. And I just went back upstairs uh, to play in my room until the movie was done. But like my sister would do that all the time. She watched Nightmare on Elm Street. And so I, I have the memory of, you know, Freddie walking down the alleyway and his arms are stretching and that that gave me nightmares. And it, it was stuff like that. But also it wasn't just my older sister. And I know people are going to feel various ways about this, but like my parents didn't really censor that much stuff from us. So at a very young age, I watched John Carpenter's The Thing with my dad. And that came out in 82 and I was born in 81. So, Oh, wow. And like, he had that on beta. And so (laughs) like he would put it on. I remember at a certain point recognizing, I'm like, Oh, this is that movie with there's the dog. Okay. I got like 20 minutes before shit hits the fan. (laughs) And what I'm going to see is going to give me night. Like the John Carpenter's the thing is like the special effects still to this day. It holds up great. It holds up great. Rob Bottin's special effects are stunning. With, that, with that movie, I, I recognize I'm like, okay, here comes the scary part. And I would just dip behind the couch and and just wait, wait it out. And then sometimes my dad would like reach behind me and like tap me on the head, like scary parts over. And then I would like pop back over, aww, keep watching. That, and then it's like, oh, here comes the uh, the cardiac arrest scene. What was the first story <laughs> you can remember writing? The first horror I can remember writing? Yeah, the first story you can remember writing. Story? Oh, It was a short story that I think I wrote in like third grade about a little girl whose parents wanted to go to some hoity-toity classical music concert and she didn't want to go. So she tries to like fake an illness or something to get out of it. And I gave it to my mom to read. And I remember her reading it and and she laughed at a moment that I was like, it is funny. Awesome. Were the characters black? That's great. 
I didn't necessarily make them. I didn't like write in, in my little third grade handwriting. They are black, but it was clearly our family. And that little girl was clearly me. <laughs> Got it. Um, I, yeah, I didn't specify that they were black. I don't think. Uh, but my mom laughed and I was like, oh, I might have a knack for this writing thing. Okay. And then as I was growing up, like English was my favorite class. And I had a white grade school teacher, Mrs. Palmer, shout out to Mrs. Palmer, who like when she would give us writing assignments, like creative writing assignments, I just, I loved it. And like, I excelled at it. And she asked to keep my work, which she then used subsequent years to like show her students is like, when I give you this assignment, this is what I need you to aim for. And to have like a white woman outside of my family go, oh, hey, your stuff is good. Can I keep it and use it as examples? It's like, I do have a name. Not that I didn't love my mom, but at a certain point I recognize I'm like, my mom's my mom. Validation. Since somebody outside your family who has no obligation to love you or support Mm -hmm. you sees you and wants what you've got, that's, that's critical. It's critical for us to find those mentors. It is. Um, and usually they're English teachers. <laughs> and, and the, yeah, mine was Mrs. Otterness, English yeah. teacher. She saw me and it made all the difference in the world. Mrs. Harris, fifth grade. Let me read my stories in front of the class. So, <laughs> so yeah, I had to, I had to get up and like read the stories in front of the class, which I'm just like, do I really have to? It's like, yes, they're good. It's like, oh, well, that, that's so great that you got that, that validation and support so young. Yeah. And, you know, looking at you, you studied creative writing at college, then you went on to study, uh, screenwriting and film at, at USC, from what I understand. Yep. How would you say the industry has changed in the past 10 years? And hearkening back to Steve's question about, about race, because I know oftentimes coming up in television and movies, you're not writing Black characters, and now you're having some opportunities to write for Black characters. What kinds of changes are you seeing in the industry as they impact you and your work? I will say like in the last 10 years, unfortunately, it's gotten a lot harder, especially for newer writers to to break in. Like the kind of collapsing of the industry into IP makes it very difficult, especially for like newer voices, because there's only so many IPs that are people of various colors. And a lot of times, you know, Marvel is going to hire someone who's kind of established already before taking a chance on a brand new writer. So that's that's a tragic thing. It's like the the obsession with IP uh, that has kind of stifled the spec script market and that gives people those chances to like write their stories about themselves. But you do kind of have like breakouts. Like I was really happy to see, you know, Reservation Dogs FX, which finally it's like I have like Native American writers who are friends who are just like they'd been, you know, struggling for years to get their stuff on the air. And it's like, once you have that one breakthrough, it's like, Ooh, 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 me, me. And I noticed that with like early on when I would pitch stuff, it would be white focused. And I was like, okay, if I get this, then, you know, I'm going to have to like insert a black character who hopefully does not die. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But that's the thing. It's like when you're writing for studio and, and, you know, they bring you on to like adapt something or or write something in house, like usually they're going to take that script and give it to a director and then it's out of your control uh that was one of like the stressful lessons to learn early on it's like ah shit like i can do this but then i have no control over what happens to this black character in rewrites when it's shot but as things went on like i'll notice like there was there was the beginning of a wave kind of like pre us or sorry a pre get out but then when get out was released it was a whole other thing where it's like, oh, yes, 
black led horror and genre can make money. And it was like, great, great. Cause I have black led horror uh, and I can pitch it now, but it's the thing where certain execs of certain hues, what they take from success might not be, oh, hey, we should give more people more opportunities to tell these stories. It's like, okay, well, Get Out was about Black trauma and suffering. And it spoke to a social consciousness. So even when I was in meetings with executives who were willing to hear those pitches, the first thing was like, so how does this speak to the Black experience? And I have, these are white executives. Oh, what? Telling, like, ask, how does this speak to the Black experience? And I'm like, well, I, I mean, it has Black people yeah, and their it's- experiences. So, and, and you know, the underlying, the note under the note is like, how is this, tra- what are Black people fighting through that we're going to see? And it's like, it doesn't right. always have to be. And I know you guys have seen it like on Twitter and all that. It's like, we don't have to have Black trauma stories every fucking time. No, like, and, and, and there's a lot more to horror than, or lynching is horror, all, which is what all, I can't stand. So, yeah, it's like. Are trauma stories and all Black tra- and black trauma is about what white people did to us. And what, in essence, they're saying, tell us another story about how powerful we are. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, he said it. He that's right. Even when we're not it. there, we're I'm going to get that. Yeah, that's right. You got the yeah, crowd riled was, up with that one. It was a frustrating <laughs> double-edged sword of like, okay, they're buying now, but it has to be this specific thing that, like, I I'm not not going to speak to it, but also it's just like, yeah, I. I want to have different perspectives that we haven't necessarily seen of black people. Again, I grew up in a small town yes. in Missouri, like one small of the reddest town. states we have now. And like, you know, growing up with like black country folk, like a lot of times when I was coming up, what white people were buying in the industry and what you were seeing was like the inner city. Like once Boys in the Hood came out, mm-hmm. that became the trope. Is that like was it. Black inner city life. And you never saw anything else. I didn't see people like me and you know in these meetings i'd be like well you know like it it can be kind of traumatic to be black in the south especially like right now again like just you know like trying to live day to day and dealing with racism and like that you know but yeah it was they wanted the specific like oh is this person why do i need that (laughs) you know what also akela what's really frustrating along with that is while they're making black artists jump through those hoops in order to cash in on how profitable it is to have an inclusive film, they will cast a white screenwriter's characters of, of black, you know, black or other ethnicities in a heartbeat. Yeah. Right. They're not having to jump through that hoop, but at the same time, you could also just give maybe a script that isn't about so-called black trauma to a black creator, the same way that script wasn't about black trauma, but now you've included a problematic aspect because this white screenwriter wasn't picturing the character black and they've introduced something that's problematic. Oh, I've had to, I've had to do those rewrites. Uh, I mean, I've been brought in to rewrite (laughs) the character that was white, that is now black, but I guess it's a good thing that studios are recognizing that, now it's like, yeah, we probably need to have someone <laughs> who, you know, fits the definition of this character to take a look at this character. I mean, so that is progress. Three white guys, you know, right, trying to write this experience. Uh, but everything it's also, that it's, you have done, Akela, everything that you have written that has actually made it to the screen, small screen or large screen, what would you say is the single piece of work that when someone, if someone watched it, you would say, you know me. You I haven't have done that yet. This, you haven't oh, done wait. it yet? 
Wait, there, I have, there must be something I, that is more that way than the other material. It speaks from your from your heart. That speaks from my heart would be episode eight of Strange New Worlds, which okay. airs June twenty third, I believe. If the Can't schedule follows, um, and you'll be surprised because it's not necess- it's not horror. It's just fun, and and I'll talk about it when it airs. But it's it's incredibly personal to me, and I'll say like this is basically a love letter from her daughter to her parents. Yeah, well, I mean, I take a look at, at, your, at your space there, and it's playful. <laughs> it's a it's a little girl space. It's full of toys and plush things, things that you can touch, and in images of things that are horror. But Aliens was not about it was not a horror film. It was about human beings rising to deal with their horror in a courageous way. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I have no problem believing that that the thing that's closest to your heart would not be something negative and downer. That does, no. that does not seem to be you. You you smile. You're you know that that comes out of you, and that's you know when I when I say this, I mean it sincerely that you have presented a beautiful example of how to do this and keep your light alive. Yes, so we thank wanted you. to. Add, you're so welcome, and thank you. And One and sometimes things, horror does that. Horror writing, horror for me, leeches out some of that pain and trauma to enable me to to be sunny. I'm a I'm a smiling sunny person. I don't want to be marinating in rage. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard not to marinate in rage sometimes. But. Yes, it is. Well, how do you deal with the inevitable downturns emotionally? Just, you know, if you're creating and you're focusing, how do you protect yourself? What what are your rituals of self-care? Sometimes it's like if what if if I'm not working and I'm and I've been working on this because I realized years ago that I am a workaholic and I'm trying to like find that balance between it's like, and this is, I think it's also an American capitalistic thing where it's like, if you aren't working, you're not productive. And what are you doing with your life? If you're just sitting there and it's like, sometimes it's okay to just sit and, and uh, especially as a writer, it's like taking a break and letting your brain do other things, whether it's just like vegging out on the couch or taking a walk, or listening to music, hanging out with, it's like, you have to feel that creative well. And that's something that my mom is always, she was like, don't get burnt out. And yeah, take a break, because you got to do things that help you feel your creative well. So I've gotten better with just taking time for myself, and also like putting boundaries with my my agents who are always very eager to make money, because <laughs> like, sure, they don't get their commissions Unless I'm getting paid. They will sell all of you that you put on. And there was this, like, there was a phrase that's like my, my agent and my manager would use. It's like, you're a machine. And early on in my career, I took pride in that. It's like, damn right. I produce material and I produce it, you know, regularly, consistently. And now I'm just like, I don't want to be a machine anymore. I want to be a human being. And so I've been working towards it's like, and, and again, I'm very lucky in that I have had the, that I can like, uh, words are failing me now just kind of like space out is what i was looking for space Mm -hmm. out jobs at this point so i don't have to take everything back to back to back to back to back while also working on a show and so yeah 2022 i was like this is going to be the year where i just completely slow down like last year i think i had like 11 projects in various stages Mm. this year i only have eight oh just complete may i suggest a different metaphor for you one other than machine I think that you could be a garden Aww. that you could simply walk out in the morning and see what has ripened and pluck it and bring it in and just allow nature to do what it does in its time. Yeah. yeah. You, you have planted the seeds. 
you know, you're a farmer's daughter. I am. You planted the seeds and you understand that the time comes for letting it lay fallow mm-hmm. you know, or harvesting or baking bread or sharing or going to market. That in, in that process, you're not a machine. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> See, but what not everybody, you know, you, you've, you've already, you've already done the planting. That's yeah. the thing. You know, you don't, it, it's, it's, it's recognizing that you've done the work that's necessary to be at the point when you can slow down and wait for those tomatoes to ripen fully before you pluck them. I, you, I think your, your career will actually flower. I think if you do that, you've gotten to that point. Oh yeah. And another thing I'm working on, you know, just like mental health wise is like, you know, taking breaks and not doing anything. I am really bad at relaxing. I've come, I came to realize it's like therapy helps, but it's yes. like, yeah, like I, I don't know how to relax. Like even when I go on vacation, I'm that person who is like, okay, I'll go to the concierge. I'm like, I need you to give me the pamphlets. Cause I need to find stuff to do. Like, mm. and so it's like, I, I schedule things and I book things and I fill my day. So the last vacation that I took, um, when we, remember last year when we all thought like after the vaccines, it's like, oh, Hey, this is going to be a great summer. It's, you know, Cases are dwindling and hospitalizations are going down. So I, I, I went to Hawaii, which is my happy place. And I didn't take my laptop. I just had my iPad just in case. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. But I'm like, I am going to do nothing at this resort. Like reading books was like totally fine. It's like I and it was five days. And at first it was kind of a struggle because, again, I'm like, surely there's some like it's like I, I read I napped. They had a nice hiking trail that I would just like walk around and explore. And then I would go back. I would nap. I would like, and yeah, it was, it was so, it was actually refreshing after a certain point. Did you get it's massages? Like, you talked about massaging, getting massages. Yes. So as, as, as we all at some point, like work at these desks and we hunch over and no matter how much we try at some point, your posture is just going to be screwed. And so one of the things that I was trying to do before the pandemic was like regularly get massages, like get the knots out of my body and like treat my body. Cause I also exercise, like I run. And so I know I need <laughs> care in that way, like that maintenance. Cause like at some point stretching is just not going to, not going to suffice. Pandemic hit no massages. And so one of the things now that I'm trying to get back to is like find a place and find a space to like, just get a regular massage. So I'm not as tense, even when I'm trying not to be tense. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I know I need to get back to. That sounds great. Taking notes, taking notes, because of what you, what you're doing is working. So <laughs> yeah, that's, the, that's the, my whole thing is if you want to accomplish somebody, find somebody who's doing it and find out what they're doing and do that. You know, just really everything, everything in my life. And so great talking to you, Kayla. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. What were you about to say? I was going to ask, where do you want to be in three years? Oh, I would love to have my own show, which will be a genre show. That is what I'm working towards. I would like to actually create and then produce my own show. And then with features, there's i I'm actually in the process of pitching a project now that I am super excited about. So yeah, I hope we're able to sell this and I can write it and like, cause it'll be really cool. Like it's a really cool idea. Uh, and there's some really cool deaths in there uh, that I am eager to put, you know, to paper and also see visualized and then yeah, just Keep keep working on features and keep working in TV. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, uh, Akela. You've been such a great uh, guest. And stick around, but we want to talk a little bit about our Life Writing Premium Program, because there's so many things that you said that really have to do directly with the kinds of things that Steve and I teach in our, our weekly digital uh, download course that we'd like to tell is, people about. If you're prepared to, to promise yourself that you will write at least one sentence every day, if you will keep that creative space open to, to promise yourself that, we can guide you through finishing short stories and then mm-hmm. longer projects and selling them and finding your way into into career. And it comes from it, the entire program came from interviewing people like Akela. I mean, seriously, you know, and, and people who have succeeded enough different people that we were able to find the commonalities in their experience. So every week we offer writing cues, audios, videos, homework. Just every week you'll hear from us. And then every month we choose one student story and we do a live Zoom hot seat, taking that story apart to show you how the principles of the hero's journey apply, not just to plotting or the process of writing a story, but also the process of having a healthy life. If you listen to Akila talk about not just the the amount of work that she's doing, Akila rather, not just the <laughs> amount of work she's doing, but how she stays sane in the midst of it and her struggles with that. If you listen to that, you will you will get hints of how people become self-destructive when they step off that path and stop taking care of themselves or start caring more about what other people feel about the work than they care about how they feel about their lives. Yeah. So Life Writing Premium, which is really the whole reason we do this podcast to help people understand who we are and what we teach. It's those weekly modules If you it, and you pace it yourself. So if you don't have a lot of time, you can just do the most basic level. But every week, there's also a more advanced level where you can watch old lectures, read lectures. I've lectured at the Geneva Writers Conference. I've taught in MFA programs. And some of you might be like, well, I'm doing fine. I don't need that. But just remember that it's always so great to have a support group. So we are giving support through our teaching and the weekly modules, but we also have a social media page where people can say, hey, right, right on. What are you working on? And we have it priced so that it is affordable. Uh, you might, if you've been through a writing program, you know how expensive school is. So, so this is only $27 a month. And of course, you can quit the program at any time, but hopefully you'll stay in for the entire year because we really believe you can transform your practice and have fun at the same time. That's what we want. Akela, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Thank lot of you fun. for being here. You are a great guest. And everyone else who's listening, go on and write the adventure of your lifetime. Just remember, you can do it one step at a time. Keep your dreams, keep your body moving toward it and never, ever, ever give up. That is the most important thing. Believe in yourself. We believe in you. You can find out more about the program at www.lifewritingpremium.com. So we'd like to thank Akela for being our guest today. She's thank been you very much. Wonderful. Yay! Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.